morning. We can't take our praise team for granted, can we? What a great job. Let's praise the Lord for that. And I believe that was Elaine at the piano. Um, thank you, too. Well, it is uh, an amazing day. I've been waiting for this weather all summer long. <clears throat> and I understand it is Patriot Day. 15 years ago, who will ever forget? And it's also Grandparents' Day. Who will ever forget <laughs> when you became a grandparent? Your life changed that moment, too. And I understand there's uh, some regional football team uh, playing a game a little later on. So I really had a hard time deciding what to preach on today. It was Tuesday that Marina and I were having our morning devotions and uh, the passage of scripture that we were looking at happened to come from the book of Romans. And it was one of those very typical Pauline passages where the sentences go on and on and on forever it was deeply theological and somewhat sophisticated. When we got done reading the text, uh, Maureen looked over at me and said, you know, Romans is one of the least, my least favorite books in all the Bible. So this morning we will go to the book of Romans. I assured her that I had already decided to preach this sermon before she made that statement. And uh, we talked about all the great and practical passages in Romans, including the one that we're going to look at right now, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The golfer was looking down at hole number one, and it was a terrifying hole. The fairway was very narrow and lined with woods on both sides. The green was surrounded by water and three somewhat terrifying looking sand traps. So he thought about his golfing ability and decided that he would pick an old ball out of the cart in case he lost the ball on this particular hole. And he placed it on the tee and then he heard a shout from the heavens saying, no, use the new ball. And so somewhat terrified, he picked up his old ball and put his new ball on the tee. And he heard another shout from heaven saying, now I'd like to see your practice swing. So he stepped back a little bit and took his best practice swing 
And then he heard another voice from heaven saying, use the old ball. Well, it would be wonderful if God's will for us was so clear and audible as for that golfer. Today we ask a question concerning God's will. Will it be his will or your will? Your way or God's way? Look for yourself and you will find loneliness and despair. Look for Jesus Christ, and you will find him and everything else. Let's pray. God, you continually place before us life and death, black and white, the wide way or the narrow way, our will, or yours. And so we ask in this moment that you clear our minds, that you pierce our hearts, that you capture our will and make them completely yours. Amen. We sometimes get it all wrong when it comes to God's will. We pray, God, if you will just show me your will, I will give myself to you freely, fully, and forever. But the passage before us this morning reminds us that it has to be exactly the opposite. In order for us to ascertain and to know and experience God's will, certain things have to happen first in our minds, our hearts, our wills, our entire being. To help us remember this process before we arrive at God's perfect and pleasing will, we're going to look at and consider eight S words to help us. The first word is sovereignty, because the first word in chapter 12 is therefore. That causes us to look ahead, but it also causes us to look back to see what Paul has just been talking about. And so we go back to chapter 11, beginning with verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And so first we must recognize the sovereignty of God. The first step is to be blown away, completely awed and amazed by the greatness and supremacy of God. We have to get an accurate view of God. We don't so much need to get our psychology right as to get our theology right. What you think and believe about God forms the foundation, the context for everything you do and feel and experience. In fact, someone said that what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. What you believe about God is the most important thing about you. 
And so Paul prefaces everything by giving this hymn of praise, this glorious doxology, and he searches the height and the depth of his own mind and the height and depth of the Greek language to attempt to find words and phrases to explain in human terms the majesty and the wonder of who God is. He talks about the riches of his wisdom, the knowledge of his will, his plans, his actions, and he ends up in verse 36 by saying, all things are from him, through him, and to him. In other words, God is the initiator. He is the source of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. He's the one that keeps all things together, and he is the goal of all things. He's the font, he's the force, and he is the finality of all things. So before we get to the word therefore in chapter 12, we need to recognize and bow before the sovereignty, the majesty, and the greatness of God. And then Paul says, therefore, and so we note the sequence. First you get an accurate picture of God. Paul says, because of all that I have just said, something follows. Because God is all that he is, now I'm going to tell you what your response should be. And so he says, therefore, I urge you. And so the third S word is seriousness. He says, I urge you, I beg you, I plead with you. With all that is within me, I'm asking you, I'm pleading with you to do this. And so we're dealing with ultimate seriousness. It's not a Sunday school picnic we're being invited to. This is a plunge into the depths of discipleship. And then he says, therefore, I urge you, who? Brothers. And so here we're talking about salvation. This passage is for believers only. Those who have been made children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So if you're here today and you're hearing this message about the will of God and how to discover that, how to experience that, how to test that in your own life, this makes no sense to you if you are not a child of God, if you are not a brother and sister with those who have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their life. And notice that he says this is in view of God's mercy. God's mercy that saved us and rescued us and made us new creatures in Christ. At the end of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was meeting with a number of leaders from the North, from the Congress specifically, and he was talking about the policies that he had in mind for the South. And at the end of the speech, Senator Harlan stood up and said, what shall we do with these rebels? And there was a murmur that went through the crowd, and the great majority were saying, hang them. But Abraham Lincoln's son, Tad, happened to be in the crowd, and he went up to his father and looked up at his father and said, Papa, no, don't hang them. Hang on to them. Abraham Lincoln said, yes, precisely that's what we need to do. We're not going to hang them. We're going to hang on to them. You know, when God saved you, 
when God saved wretched, unworthy me, people who were only due wrath and condemnation and separation from God, that's what he decided to do. He wasn't going to wipe us out. He was going to hang on to us. And he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place. And then he says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And so the fifth word is sacrifice. That is, we are to offer, we are to present as an act of our own free will everything that we are, everything that we have. That's why he says in this instance, I'm not asking you to give your mind or your soul or your spirit or your heart. I want you to present your bodies. That is, everything you are the visible expression of what you are inside. What you think, what you do, who you say yes to, who you say no to, where you go and when, how you spend your time. And notice that he says we are to be what kind of sacrifices? Living Sacrifices That was totally contrary to what the Jewish people had grown up with. The sacrifices were not living, they were dead. That was the whole point. The lambs were sacrificed and brought dead and burned as uh, a solution for their sin, as a covering for their sin. But we are to be living. We are the living dead. You know, we're dead. We're dead to sin. We're dead to an old way of life. But we are alive to God like never before. Someone in the first uh, service came up to me and said, you know, we're not only the living dead, we're the grateful dead. Um, how true. And this is pleasing to God. This is the ultimate act of our worship. Other versions say this is our reasonable service. When you look at what God has done for you, the only rational, reasonable, logical response is to give yourself fully to him as he has given himself fully to you. And then he goes on to say, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. And so here we're talking about separation being separate from the world's way of thinking and acting, saying no to it, not going along with the crowd, not going with the flow, not putting your mind and your spirit in neutral, because if you put it in neutral, the world is going to suck you into its way of thinking, and you will be conformed to that way of thinking. It takes a conscious decision, not only once and for all, but, but every day, in fact, every minute of our life, we are making this decision to say no to something so we can say yes to God. And what is this worldly way of thinking? James Engel kind of summarized what he calls modern man's way of thinking. 
God, if he exists at all, is just an impersonal moral force. Man basically has the capacity within himself to improve morally and make the right choices. Happiness consists of unlimited material acquisition. There really is no objective basis for right or wrong. The supernatural is just a figment of someone's imagination. If a person lives a good life, his eternal destiny is assured. The Bible is nothing other than a book written by man. Well, if that's true, we might as well close the doors, go home, do the best we can because this is all there is. Eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die and everything, you know, it really doesn't amount to anything at all. But if the Word of God is true, then we better read and study and memorize and base our life on it. That brings us to the sixth S word, and that, or the seventh, excuse me, saturation. We need to be so full of the Word of God that there is no room for Satan's way of thinking, for the world's way of thinking. We need to be changed. Paul says you need to experience a metamorphosis. You need to completely change. You don't need to just become a better person. You need to become a completely new person by a miracle of God's grace. You need to be changed by the renewing of your mind. And how do we do that? Well, Paul gives us a hint in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, where he says, think about such things as this. What is true, what is noble, what is right, what is pure, what is lovely, what is admirable, what is excellent, what is praiseworthy. These are the things we need to saturate our mind with. Saturated with the word of God so evil has no room. Now we come to the last word which is the word satisfaction. He says, then you will be able to test and approve or you will be able to experience what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You will be able to approve or test by your own experience what the will of God is. And notice how he describes God's will. It's good. That it is, it is right, it is holy, it is for our good. And it is pleasing. It's first of all pleasing to God, and as we experience it and submit our lives to it, it becomes pleasing to us. His will does not become an obligation or a have to. It becomes a privilege and the greatest joy of our life. And then he says it's perfect. That has to do with completion and fulfillment and satisfaction. When I think of the word satisfaction, my mind goes back to the 60s and the 70s. Uh, I grew up in a very strict Baptist home, so I wasn't allowed to listen to rock and roll music. But I just happened to hear one time uh, the Rolling Stones song and Mick Jagger telling the truth like perhaps he's never told it before and the song is you probably know 
what it is by now. Can't get no satisfaction. I try, and I try, and I try. I try everything. I've tried women. I've tried song. I've tried wealth. Nothing. I try, and I try, and I try, but I can't get no satisfaction. Bad grammar. But very accurate reflection of a whole generation's philosophy. And unfortunately, the generations that have followed have adopted this philosophy as well. Despite the fact that we can't get no satisfaction outside of God, we keep trying. If you watch TV for half an hour, you will know that the world is seeking satisfaction in everything and anything other than God and his will. You know, uh, God has, I, I think, mercifully placed within us a gene, a G-E-N-E, -E, that nobody talks about. It's called the lack of satisfaction gene. He built that into us. Because if we seek satisfaction in anything or anyone else other than God, the inevitable result will be that this gene comes into play and becomes reality in our life. Now, worldliness is anything we pursue or value more than God. Whatever cools our affection for God. Andrew Murray said, God is ready to assume full responsibility for the life that is totally yielded to him. Let me repeat that. God is ready to assume full responsibility for the life that is totally yielded to him. That's why Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, not chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard that which I have entrusted unto him against that day. He's believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is convinced beyond any shadow of a doubt that everything that he has entrusted to God, he will keep it, he will guard it, he will have total assurance on the final day, on the day of judgment. But God can only keep that which we have committed to him. That's the implication in this verse. What we commit to him it's a sure thing. It's taken care of. But what we hold back for ourselves, then all bets are off. Anything can happen in that case. If we give little, then we will have little assurance, little hope, little peace, little satisfaction. What do we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Thy will be done. How? On earth as it is in heaven. 
How is God's will done in heaven? I rather suspect that it's done immediately, it's done joyfully, and it's done completely with no question asked. That is what Paul is saying. That's what you need to do, brothers and sisters. Commit everything to him. And that's the only way to achieve satisfaction and fulfillment in this life. Let's pray. God, I would not presume to know what the decisions are that are weighing on the minds and hearts of each person in this congregation. But I know, God, that you desire a complete surrender to your will that is good and pleasing and perfect. I pray for the one who may not be a child of God as yet, that one who may be considering your claims upon their life, but they're holding back, they're clinging to their own desires, their own will. To this point, they have concluded that their choices are better than yours. I pray that your Holy Spirit might enter that heart and that mind and convince them that you are for them and not against them, that you desire what is best, that you're not out to get them, but you're out to bless them and to cause them to become all that they were created to be. I pray that your Holy Spirit might have the power and the authority to change that life, perhaps even today. And Lord, there are many of us who have long ago said yes to you as our Savior and as our Lord. We have once and for all committed all of our life to you, but we confess how easily we take back our own life and our own will, and we desire to make decisions based on our feelings and our desires rather than your will. God, we confess that sin and we bring ourselves anew to you. We present all that we are and all that we have, all that we were, all that we are, and all that we will be to you because only you can guard and keep that for the final judgment day. God, we rest in you and we thank you for your mercies and your tender call to us today. In Christ's name we pray. Thank you so much, Pastor Kurt, for being with us and sharing this morning. And uh, join us for Connection Cafe, a donut, some coffee, and come back next week. Pastor Kim should be back. I'm not sure where he actually is, but uh, no, he's somewhere with his wife and having a good time. Uh, may we say, not our will be done, but your will be done. Have a great day. You would bear my cross. You would